This podcast is brought to you by Proudmouth, the Influence Accelerators. We help you sell less and advise more by turning you into a recognized subject matter authority. Visit us at proudmouth.com to learn more about our Influence Accelerator services. Welcome to the Quantum Growth Podcast, empowering financial advisors to build practices for the 21st century by providing insights and interviews on leadership, strategy, and practice management. Now, here is your host, Barron's Hall of Fame advisor, Jonathan Cutton. Hello, Quantum Growth for Financial Advisors audience. Very excited today to have a repeat guest, Mr. David Grau Jr., who I've been spending a lot of time with over the last year or so, and uh, happy to have you back, David, and, and learn from you again. So welcome back. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, John. Always happy to join the conversation with you. This is, uh, frankly, it's always an evolving topic. So uh, you know, I hope in six to 12 months, enough has changed and we can get back together and chop it up again. Yeah, I think this uh, maybe we make this our annual event and see what's going on in the uh, in the M and A space. So, David, with that being said, just to kind of start things off, I know you guys are, in, in my opinion, at least at the forefront of what goes on in the M and A space over at Succession Resource Group. So maybe you can just give us an overview of what has changed over the last year or so, and you know what do you see in the in the space in two thousand twenty one. Yeah, you bet. Great place to kick things off. And certainly something that is timed well, whether it's intentional or not, because this is something we do usually in January, beginning of February of every year anyway, is go back and pull all the data from all the transactions, looking back at 2021, 2020, you know, whatever the previous year was, and just try to get, you know, A for us internally, a good idea, a finger on the pulse of what's been happening. Because you know, when you're in the trenches day to day. I think you know, but when you finally stand back and look at the year in its entirety, you notice some interesting trends. And that's what, yeah, I hope we can talk through today because things did change a little bit. I mean, in some cases, more of the same, but that's such a relative term. I think the first noteworthy one that I thought was interesting was as crazy as the last two years have been, multiples on practices actually managed to go up a bit in 2021. So reached a new high watermark, 2.83 for RIAs, for recurring revenue, and 12B1s, trails, fees, obviously, uh, financial planning, you actually A, charge for it and B, do it consistently for clients, which I got to say, in my opinion, and John, you'll hate this because you obviously have bought a practice or two. I think things are still undervalued. And I think that increase, because uh, it went up to 2.83 from 2.78. I mean, that's nothing to write home about. Pretty modest increase, but I think that's really interesting and odd given how well these deals still cash flow and the fact that there's right now 72 buyers for every seller. Wow. 72 buyers for every seller, meaning 72 real interesting parties. When someone lists a practice for sale, for sale, 72 folks that are real come out of the woodwork. And again, to your point, real is certainly a relative term. There's 72 people on average who are interested that raise their hand. Okay. Uh, but sense. when you yep. really you really start digging into it, unpacking it, there's not 72 cut and wealth managements, for example, like that they're prepared, they have their stuff in order, they've got their financing, that they even have an answer to the seller's question of if I retired in six to 12 months. Who's sitting in my seat doing this job? You know, a lot of times, it, well, you know, we'll figure that out together. That's the wrong answer. 
So you go from 72 down to like 10 or 15 pretty quickly. But 10 or 15 is still more than you need. I mean, you really only need one buyer, four or five to have some competition. So 72 sounds like a lot. It is a lot. There is a lot of demand, frankly, more now than ever before. I think largely due to technology, although you being in the advisor's shoes, I'd lean into you for an explanation on that. There's a lot of demand for these practices, but there's not nearly enough folks who are premeditated about their inorganic growth strategy, like I know you are. Yeah, no, make makes sense. And um, you know, as we get into it, maybe we'll hit hit a little of that today too. Once we get the update on maybe some keys uh, to be prepared as a buyer as well, or maybe even for a, a secondary show. So you bring up a good point. Do you find that perhaps the reason the amount of interested buyers has gone up has to do with the ability to work more remotely? Uh, Because I I can share, we did more, I'll call them out of territory transactions in the last two years um, since COVID than we ever have with clients having, you know, a better willingness, not necessarily in our opinion to do all meetings virtually, but to meet someone say once a year face-to-face and then ultimately over time to probably have that even drop to every couple of years because virtual meetings are so effective and kind of mainstream today. Are you finding that in the marketplace a bit? Yeah, it's funny because honestly, John, I think your experience and sentiment is shared by more buyers than most people probably would think. And I'm talking even pre-pandemic. Buyers were generally more tech savvy than sellers. Go figure. You know, they were in their mid to late 40s. They use technology in their practice as it is now. Sellers, on the other hand, historically have been the bottleneck on that. You may have amazing plans and experience running a remote office. I mean, frankly, more successfully oftentimes than the seller was. But that's a bit of an aside. You got a 65 or 70-year-old seller who still uses a lot of paper and thinks everything needs to be done in person. And they were generally the challenge. The buyers were prepared before. They're even more prepared now. But you had sellers that were really, really struggling with the idea that somebody could operate their practice in general, let alone somebody who's not even in the same state. But they've actually started to open up on this subject where they're seeing, you know what? It turns out that you know this can be done somewhat remotely, to your point. In fact, when you really start digging into it, I mean, you know as well as I do, you could say you need a local presence, but when you really dig into it with the seller and say, you know, how often do you really sit down face-to-face with your clients on average? Is it 10 times per year? And they say, well, no, it's usually like once, maybe twice for the needy ones. <laughs> you say, okay, well, how many just random drop-ins do you get? Mm-hmm. And the answer is usually, well, None at this point. My clients are pretty well trained. So like, well, okay, so why do we need a local presence? Do you really need to know like the the local haunts and eateries? It doesn't hurt. But so it's the sellers, interestingly enough, that have been the bigger challenge, but they're opening up to it slowly but surely. Yeah, no, well said and exactly what we're seeing. So I think I think in complete agreement with that. So what else have you seen, David? Any other trends from you know, 20, uh, 2020 to th- through 2021? Yeah, and this is one I know, John, you got firsthand experience with just because you know, having worked on some deals, I know you've leveraged bank financing, you've leveraged broker-dealer financing, sort of on the whole gamut with it, but there is a lot more external financing in the market 
now than ever before. And I don't think that's, you know, banner news. People have seen the industry lenders popping up. They do more advertising and webinars. But what I think is actually noteworthy is the unreasonable sellers, which you can probably know every seller is unreasonable on something. And someday when we sell our respective practices, you know, it'd be our turn to be unreasonable. But when there was all seller financing, i.e. they got paid out of cash flow, there was no real governor on these deals. Like as long as you as a buyer said yes, then sky is the limit. Now, when you have banks involved, broker dealers involved, other external sources putting in money, all of a sudden, you know, the seller with their unreasonable expectations has to sometimes come back down to reality. And you're also getting buyers, not as you know many of them as we'd like to see, but that are they're more educated on valuation. They don't overpay for bad practices like they used to. I hate to say it, but there were a lot of fixer-uppers that got sold based on their fixed-up price, but they weren't fixed up. Yeah, no, been, been there, um, <laughs> had some learnings there and couldn't agree more. We do use some bank financing and it's it's a challenge because again, the bank has parameters and, uh, and, and understandably, they're in the business of lending and need to be protected and, and all yep. that, but completely agree with, with your thought process there. When you're thinking ahead, David, and, and uh, kind of put you on the spot a little bit, it's pretty clear interest rates are headed north. I think I actually kind of have a deja vu from our meeting last year or the podcast last year. And we were talking about super low interest rates and when interest rates are low, obviously you can pay a little bit more for anything, right? For a home or for a car or for a financial planning practice. As interest rates are likely heading north here, how do you think that's going to impact prices, if at all? Yeah, to your point, it's your rates are likely to go up. If they don't go up immediately, it's going to happen. I think we can all know and count on that. The funny thing is in commercial lending, it, it's not like mortgages, which again, we all probably have some experience with where rates for mortgages right now are two and a half, three percent 3%. I mean, that's crazy compared to loans that you know I got 10, 20 years ago. In the commercial space, yes, they're lower, but I mean, you're doing deals now, maybe in like the low fives on an interest rate. And you look back you know, five years ago when the lenders were still pretty new to the space, interest rates were higher. And the rates were like six and a half. So there's just not as much of a spread, frankly. The banks are going to get their you know, piece of it no matter what. And so they don't drop rates a lot. They don't seem to raise rates a lot, mainly because I think they understand this business, advisory businesses have something better than tangible collateral, recurring revenue. And in a low rate environment, you've got that same collateral. In a high rate environment, you got that same collateral. So there just hasn't been as much movement. So Long answer for a short question, I know, but the last comment I'll make here is I think if rates continue to go up and they will, practices are still undervalued. And, and again, I know you hate to hear that as a you know buyer practices, but I think you know it as well as I do that deals used to be done 10 years ago, all out of cash flow. Like there was no bank financing and the deals were done at like two and a half times. Now you've got bank financing and broker dealers that will do this stuff over a decade. And the multiple's gone from two and a half to 2.83. Like, you know, I hate to say that the financing should drive the value up, but 
no different than trying to buy you know real estate. If you can't get a mortgage and all of a sudden mortgages are available, it, it changes the dynamic of what you can afford to buy. So I don't think in the short term, even in a rising interest rate market, is going to change anything because these things I think are still underpriced. Yeah, no, I I agree. I don't know that we want to send this to the sellers out there, though, David. <laughs> well, what are you doing here? But uh, no, listen, that's that's why I'm a buyer, and yep. I think you're you're absolutely right. And um, you know, I think like you said before, you know, the interesting part there for buyers and sellers listening in, or potential buyers and sellers listening, and when you think about those seventy-two buyers for every particular seller, many of them as you were saying, might not really be ready to actually take on the practice. And I think that's one of the things that I see in being pretty active in the space is you need to have an advisor who has the capacity, A, to be good enough and skilled enough and competent enough to serve these clients really well. Otherwise, the seller, in most cases, really does care about their clients and isn't going to sell the business to you. And then secondarily, they actually have to have the capacity, the time, and most advisors don't have an extra advisor or two lying around right in their business that's competent and ready to take on more work. And that's been our, you know, I think competitive advantage is the ability right. to develop advisors and have a stable of really good advisors ready to, to, to kind of roll. So that, that could explain a little bit, quite frankly, of why buyers, I'm sorry, sellers are having a hard time getting that valuation because yeah. the folks buying them are a rarity because there's not enough folks in the industry, which speaks to, you know, not enough young folks getting into the wealth management space. Any thoughts there? No, I think you are spot on in your observations. It's even though there are 72 buyers for every seller, you can imagine, put yourself in the seller's shoes someday when you get there. There really aren't 72 qualified, capable people like we talked about. And you're not even looking for 72 people. All you want, honestly, for most of these sellers, I mean, put private equity back firms to the side, aggregators to the side, you know, firms like yours. All the seller really wants is themselves 20 years ago. That's all they want. I mean, don't get me wrong. They want a good price. They'd like it delivered, of course, you know, in a duffel bag full of cash. But (laughs) putting those things, those are number two and three on the list. Number one is always the fit. And the few times where I've seen the fit shift be like number two or three on the priority, priority list, they actually tend to end up getting lower values. When you put your fit as the focus, I mean, I've seen you do it in deals. When you know the seller has their client's best interest at heart, it gives you the warm and fuzzies, makes you feel better about buying that practice, knowing that you've got their support. And if you've got their support, you're probably going to have the clients. If you have the clients, you're probably going to have the assets and revenue. Yep. Nope. Could not agree more. We're very aligned today, David. Jeez, I, I got to find something to disagree with you on. I'm not sure. So we'll far, so far, I'm, I'm liking everything, except for the fact that you're telling everyone businesses are, are uh, too cheap outside of that. You've been spot on. <laughs> so speaking of businesses being too cheap, that, that little increase to 2.83 of recurring revenue, I think was the number you had mentioned. Right. What drove those valuations? So when you think about valuations, is there anything kind of like atypical out there that you're seeing in the marketplace or what's really driving the price of, of practices? Yeah, I'll give you our perspective sort of from the ivory tower as a consultant, I certainly love to hear your perspective in the trenches since you've lived this stuff every day. But I would say a couple quick hitters, growth, 
uh, as simple as that sounds and obvious, well, yes, of course, growth is going to be more valuable. You don't see it in most practices being sold. We, we call them RIPs, and I don't mean it in a derogatory way. If you're a seller listening, you might be an RIP. You're retired in place. And that's not a bad thing. You built a good practice, nice lifestyle business. Clients are well-trained. Problem is when you get to be 60 and you got a good practice and a good income and well-trained clients, you could take Fridays off. Nice to have a three-day week. I get it. And then you come back and like, man, Monday sucks. So I'm taking Mondays off because again, don't have to be here. And then, you know, lose some steam partway through the week. So we'll go half days on Wednesdays. You can maintain, but the problem is then when you call us five years into this and you want to sell the business, you know, so you show you've been growing by three or 4% every year. But how's the market done over the last four or five years? You've only grown by three or 4%. You've actually gotten smaller when we factor out the appreciation of the market, like the actual clients. So I'd say growth is a big one, but organic and inorganic, and then increased profitability. And that might be, again, I'd frankly lean into you drawing you know, connections as to why, but we are seeing firms do more with less. And I think maybe that's pandemic use of technology, having to be you know, remote in some cases, hire people in other markets. But those are you know, two big ones initially. And then the last one I'll mention again, just initially is multi-generational planning. People have been talking about that for years. I mean, you read it in the trade publications, but then we do valuations and we ask these questions and everyone says they do it. And we say, well, tell us about it. And they generally fold like a cheap tent. They, they say they do it, but not in any meaningful way. But the practices that are doing multi-generational planning, all of a sudden you can take a negative and say, yeah, we got 30% of the clients over the age of 80, but we already have their kids' accounts now and some of the grandkids. I'm going to guess as a buyer, that probably would fall into the positive category. Oh, yeah. Couldn't agree more. The interesting part is, David, I've done, as you know, over 40 acquisitions in my career, probably closing on 50, I'm embarrassed to say. But I can count on one hand, and I don't think I would need all five of my fingers, of how many of the businesses we bought really have organic growth inside of it. Like a, yeah. a business that is truly growing its net flow every year, new assets coming into the firm. And I think you're right, you know, and I, I think you alluded to this already, but you know, a lot of times when we when we buy these RIP practices, as you call it, the amount of business that we find because the advisor was kind of fat yep. and happy and he or she was was working part-time basically is just unbelievable. And I think you know, you raise a good point for a lot of advisors out there, they could probably be thinking about exiting in their, you know, mid fifties or late fifties while they still have a little more, you know, chutzpah, right? And the business yep. is organically growing and likely through valuation, perhaps replace their last four or five years of income, you know, from that perspective. So I think that makes a ton of sense. And then I completely agree one of the things, interestingly enough, I think so many advisors place so much emphasis on the top line. And I think that's just what the industry right. does. Like we look at, hey, 2.83 times recurring revenue is valuation. You know, you and I talk about this sometimes. Interestingly, I look at it, I, I, I certainly look at valuation as a parameter, um, but I also really look at EBITDA, EBITDA, right. EBITDA whatever, whatever term you'd like to use or how you look at it. But 
you know, at the end of the day, you know, a business might do 5 million a year in gross revenue, but if it only takes a 20% margin and a million drops to the bottom line, I don't know that I'd want to pay 15 times EBITDA, right? Five, five million right. times three of recurring revenue. If there's 28 employees and the uh, Trump palace, right? For real estate, yep. the Taj Mahal, there, there's a difference between each practice as well when you really look into the profitability of it. Yeah, the challenge we run into, frankly, with sellers, you might see this too on occasion, John, is we too are big proponents of valuing based on the profitability that a business can produce. The challenge is my focus on that sentence is on a business. A lot of the practices being sold are not businesses. And I don't mean it in a derogatory way. I have a business. It ain't all it's cracked up to be all the time. (laughs) You know, as well as I do, we both had a lot more hair before we had businesses. Um, (laughs) <laughs> but when it comes to selling these things, if you've got a $500,000 know, GDC practice or fee-only RIA, as a buyer, do you really care that they got waterfalls in the lobby or they work out of their home office in their underwear? I mean, is that a component of your offers? From my perspective, not really. Okay. But I think yeah. to your point, then when you shift gears, add an extra zero to that, if it's $5 million shop, my guess is you maybe care a little bit more. Exactly. Yeah. And and ultimately, if you need to keep the waterfalls in the office right. and that's part of the culture of the business, then you need to factor that in. But, you know, that that's the other thing that I think, you know, again, being on the buy side of things, a lot of times you're able to buy a business and shed a lot of expenses. And that's right. one of the benefits is lose some multiplicity, whether it be in people or real estate or technology or receptionist, et cetera. The flip side of that, you know, which, you know, is something that I think a lot of the industry is starting to realize. And over the last few years I have when you just think about the labor market today and finding whether it be good staff, power planners, financial planning specialists, financial advisors, as you go up market generally and buy businesses that are a million, let's say, or better in revenue, it usually comes with some professionals as well. And that's one of the, you know, that, that to me actually raises multiple. And I don't know if you have an opinion on that, David, but I would, for me to go find a business doing a million dollars a year, let's say, that I have to put an advisor in to relocate, take them off another project versus a business that has a 40, 50-year-old, 37-year-old, someone who's going to be around for 15 or 20 or 30 years that knows the clients and has the skill set to serve the business I pay a multiple for that second business every time because my people and the ability to recruit right now is is uh, is a little difficult. Couldn't agree more. And that's one of those areas where I'd say it's another big value driver that we've seen here as of late. And knowing a little bit more about your practice than maybe some others, I know you guys get this stuff right, is employee compensation. Because you're spot on. If you're going to go buy a business and they've got some well-trained staff that are young, hungry, want to contribute, but maybe just can't or don't want to afford to buy it, ton of value there and can be two birds with one stone, unless you see that good old-fashioned you know, GDC-based compensation where it turns out, you know, I've got a great staff member, but they get paid 50% of the production from my book of business. Now, all of a sudden, that's a little bit more challenging because you want them you're not going to keep paying them half the revenue like they were getting paid. Yes. Seen that one working on one right now. 
and um, certainly won't won't name names here, but an advisor doing around three million a year in revenue, of which about two thirds of the compensation on a million of it is going to advisors who technically don't own the clients, but are receiving two thirds of the revenue and are also getting the support of the real estate and the staff, et cetera. So there's literally almost no margin in that business. But to my point a minute ago, and to your point, the advisor's thinking not 2.83 times, but three times, 3 million is 9 million, right? right? And I'm thinking, man, it's worth (laughs) six because that million is actually, it's actually a headache. I'd prefer in a lot of ways not to have it because it's just, it's gross revenue with 100,000 or 150,000 of EBITDA, which I guess when you are, you know, and I get why people do it that way. It helps with size and scale and, you know, an extra 100,000 or 200,000 of profit is an awful lot of money. But I think sometimes selling advisors don't look at what the actual profitability of the business. And to me, I think that's, from my perspective, one of the biggest drivers uh, of valuation. It really is. And the challenge is the only time I've seen sellers focus on the profitability is when they don't really have a business to be sold. You know, they've got a million dollars in total revenue and they work out of their home office. They have a virtual assistant and they say, well, John, I've heard you pay, you know, eight or nine times earnings on my million in revenue, 900,000 goes to the bottom line. So if you'll pay me nine times that I'm retiring today. And you don't use earnings multiples (laughs) when you're buying a book of business. You use them when you're buying a business. And sellers, I think they have selective hearing. We're all guilty of sometimes. Yep. Totally agree. I I call that, David, uh, the difference between having a really high paying job, right? Right. And a properly properly managed business. So couldn't, couldn't agree more. This podcast is sponsored by Proudmouth, the influence accelerators. Proudmouth. It's tough to be seen as an expert if you're spending most of your time as a salesperson. That's why we help industry experts like you spend less time selling and more time advising by turning you into a trusted subject matter authority. We help amplify your influence over a growing audience of magnetically attracted fans who will chase you down instead. Visit ProudMouth.com to learn more. Be your own loud. From your perspective, what about technology? Is that, do you think, playing a big role from the perspective of valuation? Yeah. And again, I want to lean into you from your perspective too, but from the seat we sit in, helping facilitate the purchase and sale of these practices, representing sellers, doing valuations, technology has been a really interesting and fun byproduct of, I hate to say it, but COVID. I mean, COVID was a giant kick in the pants for our entire industry. Because I, I think, honestly, from all the other professional service providers that, that I know, you know personally, professionally that we work with, advisors were darn near the bottom in terms of leveraging technology, but it was there and available. Now you guys have at least you know passed like attorneys, way above them. <laughs> They're still back in the Stone Age. But now you see folks you know, old and young in this industry having e-meetings. Maybe folks want to get back to you know, normal. I think we can all agree that normal's been redefined to some degree. So they're frankly just getting more done with less time and less resources, which I think long-term is going to help 
certainly younger advisors grow organically and inorganically more profitably, let them do more with less resources and do it from wherever they want to some degree. So it's been pretty cool to actually see the technology that's been available for years actually starting to get tapped into and leveraged as some new revolutionary tool. Yep. And you know, it's funny, I think, I think the broker dealers and, and, and the providers out there are really happy about it as well, because they spend right. hundreds of millions of dollars in some <laughs> cases, building out technology that just wasn't being used by advisors. And now I think you're right. I think the, you know, the way it's being leveraged is, is a lot, you know, a lot different. So as you think ahead, David, here we are, we're in 2022, we're obviously recording this, you know, probably a week or two before we'll drop this episode, but I'm watching and a little volatility in the market. I've got CNBC on, on my TV, markets have been volatile. What do you think 22 brings? You know, I've, I've always believed that, and, and I'm not sure if you would, would agree with this from your experiences, market volatility seems to create sellers and create some reluctance also from buyers, because let's face it, more, more work for that RIP advisor <laughs> that you met, mentioned before, his, his or her phone rings a little bit more and the profitability goes down, particularly if the, the assets aren't growing organically. The flip side of that is I'll say, I don't want to call it the marginal buyer, but the buyer who is buying not necessarily as a real big part of how they grow their enterprise, but right. buying to double the size of their financial planning practice from say a million to two, their free cash flow, their liquidity, their guts, if you will, yeah. and understandably, by the way, might be a little bit lower to go and, and to execute at those level of multiple. What are, you, what are your thoughts on some of that as, as it relates to the markets? I think, I mean, as a two-part question there, the first part being deal volume, number of sellers, then second part, buyer's willingness to meet them is, is spot on. When you look at the number of sellers, we, we love unrest in, I'll just say in the market in general, whether it is the actual equity markets being volatile, whether it is tax changes, whether it's Reg BI, DOL, you pick from the menu. <laughs> We've had a handful over the last you know decade. Anytime that stuff happens, again, all of the advisors we talk to that say, well, you know what, David, John, I I couldn't see selling my business. I love what I do. I don't know what I'd do if I retired. Oftentimes what that really means is, again, they've got a well-trained staff, well-trained client base. They don't work that hard. They got recurring income. So retire from what? You know, I hate to say it, but that's just where so much of the industry is. It's not a bad thing. I'd love to get there someday as a business owner. The challenge though is when you've got practice on autopilot and then somebody shakes up your snow globe, it gets challenging. You have to get back in the office, you know, on that half day on Wednesday. God forbid you got to come in on Mondays. I mean, it's it just it gets to be more work. And when you have enjoyed not having to work as much and still take good care of your clients, then when stuff like this happens, you tend to see a lot of those folks, I don't want to say throw in the towel, but you know, they'll they'll sell their practice. They'll get their cash, and then they'll keep working part-time. Then they really do get to say retire from what? Because now they're just doing the one or two things they really love doing. So we're seeing a lot more of that. But to your point of the buy side, 
buyers are then equally reluctant to pay these premium values because the seller, of course, keeps a very long-term perspective on the markets all of a sudden, and it'll all go back up, John. Don't worry about it. I know I had a few clients die or leave, a few assets head out the door, but 10 years, it all goes up. And buyers then take a shorter-term perspective on things. And well, yeah, but I got to pay a bank back or I got to pay you back in the next five years. So 10 years looks great. I got to make sure this works the next five. So again, I think that that's a large part of why you don't see these multiples shooting up, even though you got 72 buyers for every seller, is you, you got to end up meeting in the middle. It's got to be fair for both sides. Yes, completely agree. Please don't shake up my snow globe, by the way. <laughs> I like my snow globe just sitting there and uh, not as picturesque as when you might shake it, but uh, right. But still, I, I, I like it nice and still and, and easy. So yeah, completely concur with, with all that you just shared. So, I mean, what else do you see? Are the big going to get bigger, more consolidation uh, deals? I know there is PE money and family office right. and hedge funds and maybe not hedge funds, but you name it, getting involved yeah. in the space. And what, what are you seeing out there from, from that in 2022 and, and beyond? Keeps it a lot more interesting for, for us. Uh, and by us, I certainly mean us at Succession Resource Group, but also you as a buyer, other buyers listening. Because again, you look back 10 years, everything sold for two or two and a half times on recurring, one times on non-recurring. You put one third down, two thirds of seller finance. It wasn't rocket science. But now you look at these deals and, and those deals still happen, but... Now you've got, to your point, private equity, you've got bank financing, you've got broker-dealers stepping in, you know, offering capital. It, it just makes it more complicated. And the challenge is, or opportunity, depending on your perspective, is as deals get more complicated, th there is a chance for sellers and buyers to, to really truly have a win-win. But the seller's got to understand how these deals are getting done because they, as soon as you start introducing private equity and aggregators, you know, firms, high tower, creative planning, uh, focused financial, cut and wealth management, you know, getting all these deals done. Like you can't just show up and do one third down, two thirds seller finance. It's not going to work for every seller. Any more than showing up with a duffel bag full of cash for every seller is going to work. So I have seen, I mean, with you, but across the board with buyers, people are getting more creative with their deal structures, which means the sellers need to give themselves time to understand those deal structures because they are getting a little more complicated, but it can be more complicated for their benefit in the end. Yeah. You know, David, and, and we're kind of, you're getting a little short on time here, but I, I, I you know, I want to spend a minute on a story that I think will, will resonate. You actually had brought a deal to me that we wound up acquiring. I think that was late last year, maybe the middle of last year, but it was actually Obviously, I won't use names or anything like that, but it was an advisor within my own broker dealer that was actually already had a deal set up and was going to sell to, I'll call it a buddy, someone that that he had known for a while. And to make a long story short, I think you were hired to help with the the paperwork and right. uh, the, building the purchase agreement and all that good stuff. And that deal wound up not going through for whatever reason. It wasn't financial, but they just decided that it wasn't going to be the right fit for some life changes that went on in the buyer's life, not the seller's life. And it was actually one of those deals, which is what jogged my memory of a one third, two third, you know, one third <laughs> up front, 
the valuation was super low and we came in and we bought the business and again you had had after the fact you know shared a little bit of the detail as did the seller and I think we wound up and this was a small practice I think it was doing like 700,000 or something like that in revenue and we wound up paying over two million dollars for the business but this the 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 deal that they had in place was at like a million five right so right. they wound up driving almost 30 percent or I guess more than 30 percent more value in the business because they didn't just go and sell to their buddy and sometimes selling to your buddy might be the right thing to do because he or she is your buddy and, and and I completely understand that and appreciate loyalty but I think when you talked a minute ago about that third two-third and you talked about sellers not being experienced right whether it be in what businesses are really worth or whether it be in how what you call aggregators are getting deals done right I think by them not doing their diligence sometimes and meeting with someone like yourself or other firms like yours right? right that at the end of the day they leave a lot of chips on the table and and I I just uh di didn't ever think about it that way right? right until we were really thinking through things today so that, and what pains me on those deals John honestly is when they sell to their buddy, if you're my buddy, buy my practice for 30% below market value because of my ignorance of the market, I, they have a name for that. And I won't say because we're on a podcast, but <laughs> you might be a buddy, but not the kind of buddy that you know I want to be in business with. And we see that, I mean, honestly, probably 80% of the time when you've got you know peers doing deals between each other, high level of trust, the downside is you end up oftentimes not only not getting the best price in terms, but we've got a pretty good finger on the pulse of you know who's out there doing deals and their practices. You're always you're not always even getting the best buyer and candidate for your clients. So I think it's worth at least you know if price and terms aren't even your focus, it's like hiring the first receptionist or you know admin professional that walks in. They may be great. You won't know unless you interview the other nine. And if that helps solidify your decision to sell to your buddy, you know, him or her, great, more power to you. But these are your clients. So I'd say as a recommendation to your point, whether it's us or somebody else, spend the time to kick the tires on the folks who are out there and interested in your practice. And then if you end up back where you started, at least you can sleep well at night knowing you, you looked around all those corners. Yeah. No, I think sage advice and couldn't agree with you more. So David, as we kind of wrap things up here, anything I didn't ask you that I should have or anything that you wanted to share? And then of course, we'll, uh, you know, we'll make sure we ask you for how we find you and all that good stuff as well before we wrap. Yeah. So just closing comments and I'll try to keep it short since I know you know, we're a little bit long is when you look at these deals getting done, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of private equity that's entered the space. Again, a lot's a relative term, but there's more now than there was you know, five and 10 years ago. Again, going to that with eyes wide open, I know so many of these firms, sellers we've talked to who are either sellers now, they will be in like the next four or five years. And their focus is, you know, how do we get big enough, enough size and scale to attract the attention of one of these private equity backed firms? And that's not a bad thing. Uh, I think there's definitely some good value these firms can bring, but also keep in mind what private equity is. They're investing, they expect a return, and they don't have like a 20-year horizon to get that return. They, they need their money back and they expect it to be a healthy return, which means the private equity-backed firms don't have a habit of overpaying for things. It might look like they do, but they don't. So they, they, they can be a silver bullet for the right practice. You know, it's five or six years out. You've sort of stagnated. I get it. 
But go into that stuff with eyes wide open, do your due diligence before you set yourself on a path where you're heading towards this big equity backed buyer, and then end up being disappointed because a lot of the deals that they'll offer you, they look great on paper until you really start to peel the onion back. And they're not bad, but they're not as good as people had once hoped. Uh, and the last one is just people are getting more creative with their deals. And I think I've seen you do some of the stuff, John, where equity is starting to be a component of these deals where, you know, again, for the, the right candidate, it's not just about the down payment and then back-end payments or adjustments. Oftentimes for the right deal, it can make sense to start factoring in, maybe paying the seller with some of your company's equity. I mean, talk about you know alignment and getting the seller really focused on working with you in the next couple of years before they really exit stage left. So that's been interesting. That was never really a component unless you looked at really big deals. Now we're seeing it show up for $50 million practices, $150 million practices. That was never a component before. Yeah, no, agree. And um, I think when... <clears throat> When the exiting advisor starts to look at that and look at some of the growth rates, not all, but of kind of the parent company, right? right. Who is acquiring you as that that exiting advisor or maybe not exiting advisor just yet, right? right. It's a way to almost double monetize, right? Your business exactly. and kind of be on the coattails of a, a fast growing aggregator or, 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 or organic growth machine or hopefully both for sure. So. Mr. Grau, as always, enlightening us with pearls of wisdom. Really appreciate you taking the time and appreciate all you do for the industry and our partnership together. And um, how do folks find you? You usually give out your cell phone or your beeper. Is it your beeper that you like <laughs> to give out these days? Yeah, you got it. We uh, almost, and I do know what a beeper is. Um, <laughs> so folks can reach uh, us anytime. Our website is always a good place to start because we do put a lot of good information up there. It's just successionresource.com. Uh, they can always email info at successionresourcegroup.com. I know it's a sentence, uh, but pretty easy once you start typing. Uh, and then you can always call us at 503-427-9910. Cause John, you know, as well as I do, I mean, so much of this is about clients and relationships. These are life-altering decisions, buying or selling. So it usually starts with a conversation with somebody on our team. We'd love people just go to the website, ask a few questions online, and then submit their you know, agreements. But these are big decisions. So we're always happy to have that conversation. Fantastic. Yes. So as always, David, thank you for that. We will post all your contact information on our show notes. And, um, and honestly, anything else that you think might be good information that, uh, that advisors considering buying and or selling might want to see, we're happy to tag along on, uh, on our show notes as well. Love it. Thanks, John. All right. You got it. Thanks again for being a guest. And to all of our listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of Quantum Growth for Financial Advisors. And if you yourself or anyone you know could be a good guest, shoot us an email, visit our website. And uh, thank you again for listening. And we'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Make it a great day. If you are interested in learning more about how Cut & Consulting Group can help you with comprehensive coaching or partnering with CPA firms in your area, feel free to visit our website at www.cutandconsultinggroup.com or reach out to us at 855-722-9393 to have a conversation.